I left Ravenswood School in 1939. There is no remembrance of place, apart from some isolated incidents totally unconnected to any schooling received there. A gnawing feeling, that my time at the school was unhappy, in the main, has persisted through the years. Perhaps strangely, in view of the foregoing, it has to be said that much was learned at Ravenswood, in spite of my distaste for the place. Term reports exist that show that, whilst not brilliant, my scholastic achievements were quite satisfactory. Before leaving this place in this period, maybe mention might be made of my one miserable foray into the field of thespian endeavor. It was an unmitigated disaster. Someone decided that, because I drummed proficiently in the school ensemble, acting must also be within my capability. As a result of this erroneous decision a minor, but a pivotal, role was thought to be within my untried talents. Insignificant and apathetic rehearsals took place at the school, but with emphasis placed upon the words to be spoken and little else. It might be hard to believe but, we had not seen the small theatre, before we all turned up for the performance. It was at this point, that the various stage directions and other essential information were imparted to a nervous cast. My character, it was learned, was to enter in a child's pedal car and stop by a bench at the center of the stage. Nearly every child in the land had a pedal car, or had driven one, but not me. I was too young, to be concerned about my image dash or about the full effect of anything I said. As a result, I spoke up and announced it was beyond my capabilities. Only then was it realized, that a proverbial bombshell had been dropped. Hurried discussions took place, before it was decided that a hefty push would achieve the required result. A reasonable decision, one would imagine. Accordingly, the car was positioned in the wings, with me seated at the wheel awaiting my cue, and the necessary push. There was time, it seemed, for me to satisfy my childish curiosity about the car. However, in spite of my fiddling with the car's bits and pieces and a faint feeling of stage fright, I was alert and ready when my cue was uttered. I braced myself, for the helpful push that was coming, but nothing could prepare me for the totally unforeseen result of the push. Immediately the car moved forward, my stage fright disappeared. It was replaced, by the terror of having instant and intuitive knowledge that my untimely death was imminent. How could it not be when, at a fast speed, which afforded great credit to the unknown pusher of my vehicle, the car was hurtling toward the front of the stage, and the drop into the orchestra pit. Instantaneously, with the first forward movement of the car, it became obvious to me that it was impossible to steer it. I was a chubby lad. I didn't want to be a dead chubby lad, but my chubby leg was jammed against the steering wheel, which was turned hard left. The steering wheel which had been played with, so thoughtlessly, mere moments beforehand. Clearly, this was a theatrical entrance that would be remembered. I wanted, so much, to be among those who remembered it. Then, desperation overcame the pending disaster. With an extra fierce tug, my leg was pulled free from the steering wheel. Being free of any restraint, the wheel was able to be turned to allow a less precipitate course across the stage. Needless to say, the car finished up far from the point it should have stopped. With apparent nonchalance, without doubt caused by the residual effects of my overwhelming terror, I sauntered over to the bench whereon sat my fellow pupil. Our conversation was completed in, so very quickly, my ordeal was over. The fact that schools were changed, soon after the dramatic debacle just described, is not thought to be connected to my thespian shortcomings. Although it must be admitted that, no requests for me to tread the boards have been received, since that unforgettable day. With Ravenswood behind me, I returned to my grand's place to live, or did I? Almost immediately upon arriving home, it became known that arrangements had been made for me to spend a few weeks at my uncle's farm at Child Oakford in Dorset. This wasn't for the first time. This was, however, the first time the journey would be taken alone. It was difficult, to contain my restless impatience. 
even overlooking my predilection for railways in general and steam trains in particular, the journey was undertaken with great confidence and excitement. My mother saw me onto the train at Waterloo Station and, after a change at Templicum, I was met by my cousin Josephine. The sight of Joe in the Shillingstone Station Yard, beside the pony and trap and with the faithful Welsh collie Lou in attendance, can be recalled today. Soon, with Lou running behind, we had travelled a mile or so to Laurel Farm. Uncle Harry was not, in all honesty, one of my most favourite people. He tended toward rude brusqueness which, when accompanying his vile temper, made him a most disagreeable man at times. Aunt Dorothy was an austere woman who played up her slight hearing deficiency. She usually heard, what she wanted to. Joe, on the other hand, was a truly delightful person. Aged about 23 years of age, at the time of which we speak, she led a life that others would have found intolerable. Completely dominated by her father, who had wanted a son to help him on the farm, Joe was a virtual slave. Her private life was controlled, in various subtle ways, and her mail was read until she was nearing 30 years of age. With possible suitors being made to feel completely unwelcome, by her parents, Joe remained unmarried. This was not from choice, but because she had a strong feeling of responsibility toward her family. So it was, men came and men went, discouraged by the difficulties presented by her overbearing parents, particularly her father. Through it all, Joe smiled. At the very great risk of being thought to be gilding the lily, I can state that Joe is one of the most pleasant, charming and genuine people who ever graced the planet. She has always had a cheerful disposition and a ready smile. The whole village loved her. She could do anything any man could do on the farm and, often, she did it much better. She worked like a Trojan, willingly and with supreme conscientiousness. On Sundays, she would play the organ, at one or other of the local churches. I sometimes accompanied her, to these churches, in order to pump the ancient air organs then in use at some of them. As can be guessed, I spent most of my time with Joe, except when I was doing one of my, increasingly more responsible, chores. At about age four, my first time at Laurel Farm, I was entrusted with the job of collecting the eggs from the numerous hen houses dotted about the fields and orchards close to the farmhouse. I progressed through the responsible job of seeing the many water containers were filled and didn't run dry, to opening and closing the various hen houses. Soon, I was entrusted with feeding the pigs and the poultry. Mixing the pig feed was necessary, of course. Supplying the cattle with cattle cake and hay, and the horses with hay and oats, came next. Being responsible for herding the cattle along the country roads, from one field to another or to the home farm, was another job. Lou was more than helpful, with this chore. Cattle were moved along the country roads a great deal in the 30s and, certainly, well into the late 40s, as I got older, my work in the fields increased. From merely raking and stooking, standing the wheat sheaves on end, into small wigwams, I progressed to being able to throw sheaves, and hay, onto wagons, with a pitchfork. This was a skilled job. It was done, so that the loader, who stood atop the load throughout, had no difficulty arranging a neat and safe load for the journey back to the farmyard. Later still, I was entrusted to assist in the building of hay and straw ricks, in the farmyard. Finally, I was able to harness the horses and hitch them to whatever piece of equipment they were to pull. None would state, or pretend, that any of these jobs were particularly onerous for a healthy lad. They did, however, give a clear insight into the working of a farm and a genuine respect for animals of all kinds. In those days and until after World War II, there was little mechanization on family farms. Jobs, these days, are done in a fraction of the time they once took. Importantly, much of the backbreaking work is now performed by pain-proof machines. Sadly however horses, once the mainstay of any farm, are seldom seen working on farms today, in spite of a sudden rise in popularity around the 1960s for sport, 
relaxation and an exercise. Family farms, too, are fast disappearing from the English countryside. I was speaking to Joe on the phone, only recently. At 93 years of age, she is still alert. She told me that, whereas there were once 12 farms in the immediate vicinity of Child Oakford, today there are none. A sad fact indeed and one that can only diminish the quality of, what is loosely called, life. It is recalled that sufficient hard-boiled sweets, to last a week if eaten sensibly, could be bought for two pennies, or tuppence, in the thirties. Tuppence was the amount of my weekly pocket money. It is remembered that, in halfpenny increments, the tuppence was spent on boiled sweets in Moon's General Store. Sweets were enjoyable, but they were not too important to me. Our family circumstances ensured, that they were luxuries. But real food, that was another matter. The table virtually groaned, under the weight of food placed upon it at mealtimes. I enjoyed the meals at the farm, very much indeed. However, it mustn't be assumed that these meals were not earned. After getting up at about 5.30, the first job of the day was milking. We would take the pony and trap, containing all the milking equipment, down to Shillingstone. Here, my uncle had a herd of about 20 cows grazing in a field alongside the river store. Lou would accompany us, running under the rear of the trap. Shortly before we reached the gate to the field, Lou would detach himself and run ahead. By the time we had gained access to the field and were ready to milk, Lou had the cows neatly assembled close to milk trap in the gate. It was a large field and the collie's great help was invaluable. It is remembered that, from the field, one could see the railway station and any trains which happened to pass by. When my few and insignificant duties were not occupying my time, I was happy to watch, or wait for, the trains. It always surprised me, a town dweller, that the coupling rods of the locomotives could often be heard clanking in the farmyard a mile away. Such quietude was unknown to me, prior to visiting the farm. After we had finished hand-milking this herd, we returned to the farm. Here, Lou had rounded the home field herd, by the time we arrived. Quickly, the cows were in their respective stalls and chained up. The cows knew which was their stall and seldom was there any misunderstanding between them. Cake, for the cattle, would be put in their individual troughs and they would stand, placidly, while they were hand-milked. It was pleasantly satisfying, to hear the squirting and splashing of the milk as it filled the large steel buckets. Before the morning milking was completed, someone would have driven the trap down to the milk cooler. It should be explained that, before the advent of refrigeration, it was common for the milk obtained from the afternoon milking to be placed in a suitable stream overnight. To facilitate this, a small section of the stream would be deepened, to a depth of around 30 inches. After this, both banks would be shored up and an effective roof constructed. The size of the cooler depended, upon the number of milk churns it would be expected to house overnight. A further refinement, not always thought necessary, would be the construction of a suitable work platform upon which to stand when the churns were deposited, or collected, from the stream. At the conclusion of the morning milking all the churns, containing milk from both morning and evening milking of both herds of cows, would be manhandled onto a solid roadside platform. It was from this platform, which all dairy farms possessed in one form or another, that the lorry from the local commercial dairy collected the churns every morning of the week. Clean churns were left, in place of the full ones taken away. Moving the churns necessitated rolling them on their ends. One full churn was as much as many men could manage, safely. To watch an expert moving two full churns, at once, was to watch an amazing achievement. By the time the milking and a few sundry jobs had been done, one was ravenous for the huge breakfast which was provided by my Aunt Dorothy. The fried breakfast containing, at least, eggs, bacon, potatoes, sausages and bread, was merely an opener, before we ate piles of toast, butter and marmalade. Fruit was always on the table, as was a home-baked fruit cake. 
In those days, most food was made in the home. Very little, in the way of baked goods, was ever purchased. Milk, of course, was fresh, daily. Bread was baked, butter was churned, most common vegetables were grown, and all preserves, from pickles to plum jam and marmalade, were homemade from all types of produce also grown, mainly, in the garden. All meat products, eaten at Laurel Farm, were from beasts raised on the farm, but slaughtered by the local butcher. Very little, in the way of food, was not home-produced. Of special note, cider was pressed and stored in barrels in the cool, purpose-built creamery. Much of the abundant garden produce was stored in the creamery, also. It was also here that a chubby lad toiled, turning the handle of the butter churn, to provide the family's insatiable butter requirements. Finally it should be noted that all the water, used in the house, was pumped from an underground spring. Initially this water was pumped inside the farmhouse. Technical innovations, later, meant that the house water could be controlled by taps wherever it was required. An extremely useful pump remained, outside the back door of the home, right up to the end of the family's residence. Water, for the animals and poultry etc., was obtained from large troughs and barrels which were kept filled with rainwater from the various roofs. Not unlike the Thatcher and many other skillful workers, whose work was made redundant by progress, there was the village blacksmith, or smith. This man, honored in rhyme and song, deserves special mention. He was, without doubt, essential to the smooth running of the community. His great skill with iron working, generally, made him invaluable when farming equipment required attention or repairing. His skill, at shoeing horses, made him even more indispensable. We have heard, already, about horses and of their importance on the farm. Although there were many breeds, there were only three main types of horse on a farm. There was the noble cart horse which did the heavy work. This work ranged, from hauling heavy loads or pulling plows and other farming equipment, to jobs like pulling tree stumps out of the ground. The ancestors of the noble cart horse once bore knights, in armor, into battle. Then, there were the cobs, ponies, and other smaller, less powerful, horses, which were used to pull lighter forms of transport. Although cobs and ponies could obviously be ridden many farms and country houses kept what was known as a hunter. As the name implies, these animals were suitable for hunting and more strenuous riding than the smaller cobs and ponies. It was an exciting day, for me, when one of the farm horses required a replacement shoe. The gentle giants were so docile and well-trained, I was allowed to take them to the smithy from quite an early age. The huge muscular man can be remembered, clearly, in his heavy leather apron and covered, from his head to his boots, in thick grime. Much of the time he would be sweating profusely, as he crouched over a hoof of a horse in the hot and stifling smithy. He'd cradle the horse's hoof, effortlessly, on his upper thigh, which provided him an eminently suitable workbench. He would pry off the old shoe, before filing and hacking away at the bare hoof of the animal. Then, with the hoof prepared, he would work on adjusting the size of a replacement shoe, taken from the wall of the smithy. Heating and hammering, heating and hammering until, eventually, the new shoe was ready to be nailed to the horse's hoof. The smell and the smoke, when the red-hot shoe was put in contact with the horse's hoof, were both distinctive and awesome. It was a smell one could not forget. Countless horseshoes covered the grimy walls of the smithy and, also amongst the thick dirt and ash, there were many examples of the man's skill in other fields of iron working. Horses would be tethered outside the smithy, waiting to be shot or awaiting collection after having been shot. In the gloomy interior of the place, was the forge. This virtually indiscernible fire would suddenly burn with a white-hot heat, when the bellows were pumped and a surge of fresh air hit the smoldering embers. Most of the time, the fire only smoked, but profusely. I, occasionally, found myself pumping the smithy fire and found it similar to the church organs that I pumped. The churches, 
however, didn't have the characteristic smells of burnt hoof, acrid smoke and good old-fashioned sweat that pervaded the smithy. Before moving on with my story, one important thing remains to be mentioned, about my farm time. No doubt worn down by my pleading, my mother had bought some strong leather hobnailed boots, for me to wear about the farm. They were, of course, miniature copies of the heavy boots many workmen of the day wore. Although Wellington boots were necessary, occasionally, I couldn't wait to wear my heavy clomping boots and I wore them at every opportunity. I was in my element walking, and making noise, and them. Perhaps a psychiatrist would find some deep hidden reason, for my predilection for these heavy boots. It is said that all good things must end and so it was, in late July 1939. My time on the farm and, a little later, the school holidays ended. It is recalled that huge excitement was felt, to be joining my new school after the holidays. The Latimer Foundation School, at Hammersmith, was the third ship of learning I was to sail in. Again, this was a private school. However, unlike the others, it had a truly proud history and my anticipation was high. In 1624, when James I was on the throne, which was before Charles I and Oliver Cromwell, Edward Latimer bequeathed a sum of money to be used to educate a small number of poor children living in the parish of Hammersmith. As a result of this fine and generous philanthropy, two fine schools eventually came into existence. The Latimer Foundation School, which progressed through many buildings until, in 1863, it finally came to be housed in Hammersmith Road, and, later, the Latimer Upper School. I was fortunate, and privileged, to attend both of these fine schools, more than 300 years after the bequest had been announced. First however, before I set a foot in the Foundation School building, there were some preliminary preparations. For the first time a school uniform was required in the shopping trip, to purchase this, is recalled. My mother and I walked down King Street in Hammersmith, to Bardwell's clothing store. Here, a complete school uniform and the required accessories were purchased. Bardwell's would, from then on until the end of my schooling, supply all my uniform clothing requirements. My first day at Latimer is remembered, but more from the feelings I experienced than from any actual factual incident. It is recalled, that I set out from the house feeling very proud and very grown up. Wearing my brand new uniform and with a smart leather satchel slung over my shoulder, the route, that had been dinned into me and which had been walked with my mother at least twice, was followed. The school entrance, on Hammersmith Road, was immediately opposite the junction of this road and Wolverton Gardens. There was a policeman, to help pupils across the very busy road, and it is thought that there was also a Belisha crossing. About 20 minutes after leaving my home, the 660-yard journey had been completed safely and I was on the school property. The smell of chocolate emanated, from the Fuller's Chocolate Factory which was situated next door to the school. The smell was pleasant enough, but it pervaded the whole of the school premises and was impossible to ignore. Nothing had prepared me, for the experience of entering the venerable 76-year-old school building. Even at my young age, I felt a deep respect for the place and a conscious pride that I was a pupil there. I was not to experience the feeling again, for some years. From the moment I first entered the school, I knew that I could do well at such a respected place of learning. And so it was, until Adolf Hitler's wicked machinations caused a serious rethinking of plans to be undertaken. One day, there was no thought in my mind of the upcoming war. The next day, it seemed, I was being ready to be evacuated. Life, for one insignificant eight-year-old, as for countless millions of other people, was about to be changed forever. After far too short a time, I was to be uprooted from my home. Not only that but, I was about to be uprooted from a school with which I had so quickly come to feel a synergetic compatibility. I had no idea, about the tremendous and far-reaching differences that would take place in the next five or six years. I did know, that I was very sick at heart to be leaving my new school.
Had I known I would never again tread inside the building, I think I would have been inconsolable. On September 1, 1939, a large number of the school's pupils assembled in the playground. We must have presented a peculiar sight. We all carried a suitcase, as well as a regulation gas mask in the square regulation cardboard box. These boxes hung round our necks, on string. Tied to our coats, usually in a suitable buttonhole, we each had a large label. The label gave our name, our school and where we were headed. In truth, we looked more like lost luggage than school pupils. The playground, which had echoed to the happy shouts and shrieks of countless boys for close to 100 years, was a somber place. After some initial confusion, such as often happens at such times, we were formed up for the short walk to Hammersmith Underground Station. It is recalled that a red-haired boy was left behind. He was seen, just before we left the premises, standing forlornly on the grass at the front of the school. In response to our childish curiosity we learned that he was German. I'm positive that, until that moment, none of us boys either knew or cared about this revelation. Neither did we fully realize the various implications involved so we trudged, cheerlessly, down to the station. The smell of Fuller's chocolate followed us, all the way. Before moving on with the narrative it should be remembered that, on the first day of September 1939, the start of the huge, general evacuation of school children from London and other large cities began. Nearly one million unaccompanied children, and over half a million mothers with preschool children, left the large urban areas on this date. In all, about six million people were evacuated, either privately or under the government scheme. However, due to what was termed the phony ver, it was estimated that 80% of these people had returned home by the time the German bombing offensive commenced. More official evacuations were, then, necessary. The railways bore the brunt of the enormous evacuation operation. The detailed planning and train scheduling, necessary for such a prodigious undertaking, was brilliantly successful. Rush hour trains ran normally but, during the main part of the day, most of the other routine trains were cancelled. Instead, a steady stream of trains filled with evacuees left the main termini of the larger cities. The actual routing of these trains, leaving aside the scheduling, was a gargantuan task in itself. Not one of the boys, with me, had heard of High Wycombe. Notwithstanding, that was the name on the station at which we alighted. It's most likely that none from High Wycombe had heard of us, either. In this state of complete indifference, we found ourselves trudging along the residential streets of the town. As we straggled along, many of the adults knocked on doors or otherwise inquired if anyone was willing to accommodate us. This scene was being repeated, in countless towns and villagers across the country. Every so often, one or more of our number would disappear into one of the houses. The rest just continued onwards, to where, none knew. We were much like a string of sausages, hung in a butcher's shop. As each customer asked for them, the butcher would cut off the number required. All the time, the string got shorter and shorter, but interminably. After some time, it occurred to me to take a hand in the operation. Consequently, when a pleasant-looking and motherly lady seemed willing to house one of us, I stepped forward before being asked, or instructed. No doubt because there was no order or discipline anyway, none objected. In fact, the lady was willing to take two evacuees. Arbitrarily, another lad was selected and, soon afterwards, the two of us were ushered into a clean, friendly and most hospitable home. It was obvious to me, from the outset, that we had landed on our feet into most agreeable surroundings. Our benefactress was Mrs. Timberlake and her address was 75 Oak Ridge Road. Circumstances made our stay with the lady relatively short, but she is remembered kindly as a firm, fair, and as a friendly woman. She had raised two fine-grown sons, as a testimonial to her ability as a mother. No sooner were we through her door than Mrs. Timberlake instructed us to write a postcard, 
home, to let our folks know we were safe and sound. This thoughtfulness impressed me and made me feel in good hands. On Monday, the 4th of September, Mrs. Timberlake walked the two of us to Sand School. Although I was to tell my children that it was well over a mile away, in fact the school was only a walk of three quarters of mile. At this point, I must interject. This is the last I recall, of the boy who was billeted with me. He wasn't a pupil of the Latimer School. I do know that. But, as to whom he was or where he came from, I'm completely ignorant, or hopelessly forgetful. At the Sand School, I met up with my old classmates in the playground. The lads from Latimer kept themselves to themselves and the regular pupils, of the school, kept to themselves. Soon, the local school children went into the school building, leaving the Latimer boys alone. Shortly after this, a teacher I recognized from Hammersmith, Mr. Bampton, took charge of us, and we walked across the road to a corrugated steel building. This building, which was also used as a scout hut and for the Women's Institute, along with other sundry other purposes, was to be my school until I left in 1942. Although the Latimer boys stayed segregated for a short while, the two schools were swiftly joined. Again, girls would work alongside me. This was of no concern to me, as it hadn't been long since my mixed school experience at Ravenswood. Mr. Bampton taught us for all our subjects which were, by then, quite numerous. I believe I am correct, to say that arithmetic, both straight and mental, English, English composition, geography, history, science, drawing, general knowledge, reading, writing, spelling and music were on the curriculum. We also had cricket and football during the season and throughout the year, we took nature walks or visited places of interest in the vicinity. I greatly respected and worked well for Mr. Bampton who, clearly, was a most splendid teacher. My memory can't recall, whether or not this was my impression of him at the time. Sadly, it is felt that he was taken for granted. Children can be so blasé, about such matters. It is suspected that being happy and content, in my new home, aided my ability to take an interest in my schoolwork. Contributing, to my general well-being, was the fact that many new friends now abounded. New friends, with whom much time was spent outside the school. I was also much more independent, being allowed to play outside and explore the new world into which fate had placed me. Only a few months beforehand, my movement had been restricted within the curtilage of a boarding school. All of a sudden, my walk to school became an adventure. I had companions, companions about whom nothing can be recalled, to share the journey. It didn't take long for us to learn, where our school friends were billeted, we often took circuitous routes, if time permitted and, although it might appear self-serving, never were we late for assembly. The things we did and the games we played were those of many generations of boys through the ages. It is likely, many are still actively followed to this day. Animated conversation and friendly arguments were almost continuous. We raced, chased and played tag. We kicked anything that was capable of being kicked, without inflicting harm to us or the object. The objects kicked were stones and tin cans, usually. We made friends, with every dog or cat we came across on our journey. We would gaze, often with idle curiosity, into the various shop windows that we passed. There was little that could be purchased, anyway, even if we'd had the money. We hid from one another and sometimes, irresponsibly, we obtained illicit and dangerous rides on the backs of the timber transporters that plied the streets of this famous furniture manufacturing town. During the appropriate correct season, we played conkers, marbles dash there were so many versions, and five stones. Of these three pastimes, only marbles could be played properly, while walking to school. The other two games were best played, in a schoolyard or similar fixed location. Who decided, when the correct seasons began, or ended, has never been determined. There were, most certainly, no fixed rules about the matter. 
Nevertheless, like millions of children before us, we just knew. The major pastimes, for boys, were similarly controlled by an unseen hand. Cricket was played only in the summer months. Football was played only in the winter months. Fortunately, kicking a ball about and or throwing and catching a ball, were allowed all year round. Today, schoolboys often carry knives. Some boys, and girls, sometimes carry guns. Times change. How often, these days, does one find the following items in a schoolboy's trouser, or his jacket, pockets? A tennis ball, or similar ball, for kicking, throwing, or batting about. A hank of string, for just about anything. A sharp pocket knife, for cutting things and for whittling, but never, for a second, considered as a weapon of any sort. A magnifying glass, for cooking bugs, starting small and inconsequential fires and for looking at things closely. Also to be found might be a priceless piece of paper, which would vary in style and substance from boy to boy. It might have been an autograph, a magazine article, a letter or, some form of a keepsake that only the boy himself knew why it was kept. There was also, most often, a notebook in which to put numbers of assorted things from cars to railway engines. A pencil, usually stubby and well-chewed, with which to write virtually anything that occurred to the possessor of the said pencil. Usually, to be found, there would be some boiled sweets, or toffees, which had to be sticky and covered with pocket fluff. A rabbit's foot, for luck, which ignored the fact that the poor rabbit didn't have much luck, apparently. Cigarette cards, to gloat over or swap. Most boys had at least an elastic band, which was often used as a weapon of vair. A dead insect, often in a matchbox, to show and tell amongst his buddies. And, finally, we come to the ubiquitous handkerchief, or hanky. This filthy item was used for anything and everything, before its primary use was even thought about, by the scruffy, sniveling, sniffing but invariably smiling, urchins who carried them. The period of time, from September 1939 to May 1940, was the phony ver period. Although nothing has been done to correct the misnomer, this designation was most unfair to the Royal Navy and the bomber crews of the Royal Air Force. The Battle of the Atlantic, a truly horrific struggle for supremacy of the ocean supplying the United Kingdom's vital supplies of food and weapons, started on the first day of the war and lasted until the end of hostilities. It is true the crippling losses and the cruel hardships of the battle lessened, toward the end of 1943, but the Nazi U-boats were a serious menace up until then and, to a lesser extent, until the final days. The Royal Navy fought this war, throughout the hostilities. Similarly engaged were the bomber pilots of the RAF it is true that these pilots were not in action as continuously as they were to be later. However, they started their operations on the first day of the war. As for us civilians, though, the term phony ver certainly applied. There were sporadic raids by a few isolated Luftwaffe bombers but, generally speaking, there was nothing to indicate a war was on, at first. It is true that at the outbreak of the war, we had all been given a national identity number and a registration card. My number was DVFH 263-5, but this did nothing much to indicate we were at war. In the lead-up to the war, we had been warned of instant saturation bombing and of total war from the outset. When this failed to materialize, we all grew somewhat complacent. What a mistake. Slowly, as the time passed, the reality of the situation became obvious. Restrictions, covering almost everything imaginable, became too numerous to keep in mind, save some essential ones. Everyday food items suddenly disappeared from the shelves, before a rationing scheme was introduced in January 1940. At the beginning ham, bacon, sugar and butter were rationed. Other foods followed in quick succession. My recollection of rationing is, that it was the fairest of methods to share the meager supplies that were available. However, 
even rationing couldn't guarantee one's allocation and it wasn't always possible to receive one's full rations. Those of us who had simple tastes, for whatever reason, likely felt the impact of strict rationing less than those with a liking for exotic or gourmet foods. Boys like myself could fill up on bread, potatoes and homegrown vegetables. These items, the supply of which varied it is true, were never unobtainable during the war, although, bread became rationed, under the socialists after the war ended. The following examples give a fair idea of what rationing meant. The weekly ration, per person, was 2 ounces of butter, 4 ounces of margarine, 8 ounces sugar, 1 egg, 4 ounces of fresh or frozen meat, 4 ounces cheese, 4 ounces tea, 4 ounces flour, 1 tin of spam, about 4 ounces of a cooked meat concoction, that appeared in the middle of the war years, and 3 ounces of sweets, including chocolate. For long periods, the meat, butter and cheese ration was less than stated, while chocolate was not seen for months on end. The allocated rations were changed frequently, to reflect the supply situation but, the figures quoted above give a fair idea of to what one person was entitled. It has to be said that late on in the war matters did improve. This proved to be a false dawn because the socialist government under Attlee saw this rationing, and the vast bureaucracy that ruled it, remain in force into the 1950s. Although, as I said, bread was never rationed during the war, it was often in short supply. Milk, too, was usually found sufficient, under normal, or near-normal, circumstances. Distribution, more than shortage, was the problem with milk. Because of air raids causing serious disruption to railways, the, normally, highly efficient milk traffic was interrupted, particularly in near-large cities. Food prices and the prices of other essentials were controlled, throughout the war. Consequently, prices for many things remained quite stable. To augment the rations, powdered milk was available occasionally. Then, in 1942, powdered eggs from America put in sporadic appearances in the grocer's shops. These were looked upon, by many, with barely disguised suspicion. In fact, the powdered eggs were marvelous, in the absence of the real thing. A packet of powdered eggs, equivalent to 12 eggs, cost 1 slash 9 d, 1 74th of a pound. Both the tinned milk and the powdered egg helped in cooking and eased, if only slightly, the constant concern over what could be placed on the family's meal table. Mind you, and this can't be stressed sufficiently, the severe shortages tended to make anything and everything in the food line edible. This was particularly true, for those of us who were not accustomed to being spoiled for choice. Plain bread was, sometimes, the extent of a whole meal. Dripping, the congealed fat from cooked meats and or bones, spread on bread, transformed the meal into a feast. It must not be forgotten that unlike modern times, prepackaged meals, frozen foods, other than meat from the butcher, and countless items which supplement or provide a meal today, were not available. Frozen foods, for example, didn't exist. Some vegetables disappeared from the shops, as did many fruits. Homegrown fruit, of all kinds, became a luxury and wasn't always available far from the orchards. Wild blackberries became extremely popular and sought after in their season and, if one had raspberry canes or a strawberry bed, one was indeed fortunate. The supply of saltwater fish was drastically curtailed, as fishermen joined the services and their boats found other uses. On the bright side, school children were provided with milk at school at a minimum price or, in some cases, free. Young children, and I believe expectant mothers, were all allocated concentrated orange juice and cod liver oil. Today, most people have no idea of the privations endured by many civilians, as far as food supplies and cooking are concerned, during the dark periods of the war. It is good that they don't. The Timberlakes, in common with many of their neighbors, raised a Christmas cockerel for the festive season of 1939. 
The hapless bird was housed, in an area designed for storage, at the rear of the home. At any rate the space, 30 inches by 30 inches, was adequate and, somehow, chickens fed on prepared chicken meal and kitchen scraps produced a tasty bird for their Christmas pot. Later, the authorities officially sanctioned the keeping of a few hens, by people with adequate facilities. It must have been realized how cost-efficient such an exercise would be. Vegetables were never rationed but, along with many common homegrown fruits, were often in very short supply. Most imported fruits, like bananas, limes, lemons and even grapefruits were not seen for the duration of the war, or at least until early 1945 when some luxury items crept back into the country. In 1945, a few pineapples were imported by an entrepreneur, and were offered at £5 each or $75 in today's terms. This was more than a week's wages, for many people. Churchill, in his wisdom, decreed that a meager supply of oranges was maintained, as much for morale as anything else. He was, in this is in so much, so very right. The occasional orange worked wonders, for the civilian population. Cigarettes, while never rationed, became almost unobtainable in many shops. Tobacconists carried out a form of rationing, by only supplying cigarettes and tobacco to regular customers. This rudimentary method of control, was used by many retailers for all types of goods. People without a settled address must have been sorely abused by such methods, at least throughout a large portion of the war years but, it enabled the majority to be treated with a reasonable fairness and equality. The period, between the outbreak of war on 3 September 1939 and 10 May 1940, was for many people more surrealistic than anything else. However, for a large proportion of the civilian population the war was to intensify greatly, after May 1940. Bad news was followed by even worse news, on the BBC news broadcasts, as disaster followed disaster with monotonous regularity. A small success here and there, did little to raise morale. Then apart from the sinking of the Groff Spey, the first good news we heard was that concerning the success of the RAF fighter pilots in the Battle of Britain. Even this was soon forgotten though, when the Germans turned to 24-hour bombing attacks on London and heavy raids on many other of the larger cities. This was the period known as the Blitz. After a while, the Germans seriously curtailed their daylight raids, but the night bombing continued with various degrees of intensity. Then, when everyone thought the war was over bar the shouting, the Germans unleashed their V-1 flying bombs and, shortly thereafter, their V-2 rockets. With very few exceptions, these weapons were directed against London, although places en route experienced malfunctioning, or shot down V-1S. There was no defense, against the V-2S. It is of this period, May 1940 through the end of the war in June 1945, that this tale continues.